Amen. Can you all stand with me this morning? I'd like to welcome this morning a very special guest. Can you put your hands together and honor and welcome Rabbi Eric Licatos this morning? Come on, y'all can do better than that. Come on. Well, good morning. Wow, what a, I don't think I've ever been received like that in a church, so thank you. Well, I think it's because I know uh, several of you. I've been here before. Uh, I remember fondly we did a long class on the, the tabernacle. How many of you remember that? Remember that? Yeah, we had a good time, didn't we? And I was at your um, uh, staff and uh, leaders retreat maybe a year or two ago, and we had a great time down in Amish country. I think we did a Seder or something down there or something a couple weeks ago. So, yeah, I, I consider myself a friend of, of your church. And I just, <laughs> amen. And I just got to say what I just witnessed Wow, the way you guys feed your community, you know, the, you're a giving church, and you can't outgive God. You know that? Uh, I always tell that to my people at Tikvot Yisrael. We, we do the very, almost the exact same thing. We, we have a ministry called the Cleveland Joseph Project, and like Joseph, you know, when he was viceroy over Egypt, his, the vision God gave him um, well, Pharaoh's dream is that he realized that there was going to be famine and people are going to need food. And so Joseph had this vision and so uh, for feeding uh, the nations. And so we called it Cleveland Joseph Project. But what we do is we do the same thing you guys do. We gather food like this. Our people just bring in food. I mean, it's amazing. And uh, we give that to the Cleveland Jo uh, uh, Jewish Federation has a kosher food pantry. And believe it or not, there are needy Jews in the Cleveland area, on the east side of Cleveland. Uh, many of these people are immigrants from Ukraine. They're immigrants from Russia. They're immigrants. They don't speak English real well. They don't have, you know, uh, jobs. And so we do the same thing you guys are. And our vision for our synagogue is to reach the Jew first. We're, con we're, we're the only Messianic synagogue in Cleveland, okay? So we have a big job. There's over 100,000 Jews in Cleveland. And so uh, our mantra, our vision statement is from Romans chapter 1, which says the gospels to the Jew first and whosoever. So uh, we have Jews in our synagogue. We have Jews that um, were raised Orthodox or, or they were raised conservative or reform or secular and we have Jews that are second-generation Holocaust survivors We have Israelis in our synagogue. I have one Israeli lady who teaches Hebrew classes So it's really great when you have Hebrew speakers speaking, you know teaching those classes and then um, you know, we, 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 I just want you to know who we are, you know, those of you who don't know me. And I just also got to say, I got a, a few of our people here today. I got to point them out. Dr. Larry Morrison and his wife Cheryl are here from my congregation. And uh, I see Tony and Tanya back there. They're from our congregation too. They're some of my new disciples out there. So uh, you're going to get a little different take on what I get. They're not... Uh, I don't preach this way in my own synagogue because a lot of our people uh, are already, you know, this might be old news to you guys. So I, I, I appreciate you guys coming out and supporting me and praying.
for this. I consider this very, very important, what I'm about to share. And I have to first commend your pastor, Pastor Zach. I'll tell you something. He's a brave man for having me come out here today. He really is. Um, a lot of pastors do not want to touch this topic with a 10-foot pole because for some, they're afraid of, you know, offending somebody or something. And no, really, this is serious. There's, it's very controversial, and people just today just want to be politically correct. And so they wouldn't have me come out to talk about what's going on in Israel, to talk about this war, to talk about the uh, eschatological significance of what is happening right now. The, some of the things I'm going to share with you might be new. Um, so I need to first commend Pastor Zach because he deserves a lot of credit. It's not because I am so special or anything. It's because of this information that I'm going to share, okay, the, the news that I'm going to share with you. Um, politics. People always say, well, you can't mix religion and politics. And people say, you know, the church should not be involved in anything political. Well, that, that's an ideal that's impossible to live up to. And I'll tell you why. First of all, before I came here today, I wanted to look up the, what is the definition of politics? Because I think we all have our own opinions of what that could be. But I went to Merriam-Webster, the authority on definitions. <clears throat> and she said... And this is her definition 5A on what is politics. And I like this one the best. The total complex or the total complex of relations between people living in society. Politics. Listen, hear it again. The total complex of relations between people living in society. That's the definition of politics. So when God said in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as you love yourself, that's politics right there. As long as people are relating to each other in any way in society, that's politics. How in the world can you separate God, religion, faith from politics? As long as people are going to relate to each other, as long as they're going to give food to the, to, to the people in your community, you're practicing politics. Because everybody's going to have an opinion about how you're doing it and how much you're doing and how little you're doing. And you're not doing it right and you should be doing this and you should be doing that. Politics. Well, the ministry would be great if it wasn't for the politics, you know. So I almost laugh and when people say to me, oh, you got to keep the political stuff out of it ridiculous you guys better not talk about the bible because it's full of politics all right don't get me started i won't be here too long when the god of abraham isaac and jacob which i loved your worship here today you're you're calling him who he is you know he's not allah he's not buddha he's not all these other gods he's the god of israel and you guys get it so i don't have to prove it to you but when that God, that God, my God, your God, the one God, there's only one God. When the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gave the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, there was a threefold promise. He said, number one, I'm God. Number two, I'm going to make you and your descendants my people. So he created a nation. 
And then thirdly, he said, look around you. See this land? I'm going to give you the land. So there's a threefold covenant. You cannot separate the land from the people or from the people from God or from God from the land. It all comes together. Okay, you can't just like you can't get politics out of it, especially when God chose to mention land and real estate. Ooh, oh, now you're talking real political. All right, because now there's land involved. There's real estate. And okay, so there's going to be controversy. There's going to be contention over disputes over the land. So it goes all the way back to the beginning. You know, if you want to blame anyone, you know, I guess you got to blame God because he's the one who made the covenant with Abraham. We didn't. I didn't. You didn't. You know, so people who contend with this stuff about who has a right to the land, well, take it up with God. Today, ladies and gentlemen, the land is disputed. Who owns it? Who has a right to live there? Lots of confusion, lots of misinformation, deliberate lies and myths and efforts to twist and manipulate the narrative, okay? That is, that's nothing new. That's been going on from the beginning. But many people want to control it with propaganda, okay? And the only way, the only way to address and confront and overcome the lies is by giving the absolute facts, the truth facts, you know. Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. You can't make up facts. They are either factual or they're not. All right? They either really happened historically or they didn't. You can't make up history. You can't give a narrative of something that happened that didn't happen. All right? That's just, you know, anyone in their right mind would know that. But yet, we live in a world that if you just say it loud enough, if you just repeat it often enough, if you just shove it down people's throats as much as you can, eventually they're going to accept it and believe it. And I could go on about other things like sexual identity and all kinds of other things, but we can't do that. We can't go on. i got to stick to the topic. So today, today, I know, it's so tempting. You know? <laughs> yeah, pastor just said to me, have fun. That's a dangerous thing to say to a rabbi. You know, have fun. My goodness, we'll be here all day. No, we won't. We won't. Um, <laughs> I'm here to do three things. Number one, I'm here to sort out the truth with you about the Middle East, about what's going on in this latest conflict especially. Number two, I'm here to give you instruction on how to pray, okay, for Israel. And thirdly, I want to address the spiritual and the eschatological nature of these events that have happened since October 7th, a week ago yesterday. Now, why am I even qualified to speak on these things? Number one, I'm not an expert, but I'm informed. And I'm not informed by NBC, ABC, or CBS, or CNN, Communist News Network. Sorry if I offend you with that. The Communist News Network. No. 
I am not informed by them. Now, I look at what they have to say because I want to see how people who want to control the narrative, what they're saying. So I do watch it. I have to, you have to listen to your opponents. You have to hear what your enemy is saying. Not, not that they're my enemy, but you know what I mean? When you're debating someone, you have to understand who it is you're debating with. So, um, so that's the important thing. But the topic of this message, I gave it uh, a title, and I wanted to call it Rebirth of the Nation. And I think I have a slide there. And what you can see there is members of the IDF in 1967, for the first time in 2,000 years, standing at the Western Wall as sovereign Jewish uh, uh, authority was, con was, was achieved in 1967 after the Six-Day War. And so rebirth as a nation is the topic, but uh, like I said, I've got three things to cover in this, in this message. I want to begin in a, in a weird area that, of Scripture that most people wouldn't think to begin with, with a, a message like this or a teaching like this. And I want us to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm, um, this, this version of the Bible I'm using is called the Complete Jewish Bible Version by Dr. David Stern, translated uh, by Dr. David Stern. Uh, this message I actually gave in 2011, but I had to update it for today with the events that go on today. So um, this, the version of the scripture I use nowadays is called the Tree of Life version, uh, translation of the Bible that was put together by a team of scholars, some of whom are my um, colleagues. I'm, by the way, I'm a PhD student at uh, Columbia International Seminary, and your pastor was help, helpful and responsible for getting me into that program because he was my proctor for the tests that I had to take when I was applying to get in. So Pastor Prosser was my proctor. So, <laughs> so I hold him responsible. No, anyways, so uh, I appreciate that very much. But uh, anyways, so, uh, and by the way, I've also led tours with Dr. Larry and Morrison and his wife, Cheryl. They've lived in Israel for many years, and they work for a Christian organization called Educational Opportunities, and we've taken uh, tours of our people and anyone who wants to go to Israel. We have one planned for December, but we're kind of holding our breath to see if we're going to still do it, but that's up to the authorities. If they say yes, we're going, amen? So, um, Anyways, let's get back into the message. I want us to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6, because this says a lot about the mindset of the early Jewish believers. When they were gathered together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore self-rule to Israel? Why would they ask that question? Yeshua's already been resurrected. They're, watch, they're talking to their res, the resurrected Messiah. And their first question is a political question. Are you going to restore the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to kick off the Romans? Are you going to get rid of all of this political nonsense? And he answered them, you don't need to know the dates or times the Father has kept these under his own authority. But you will receive power from the Ruach HaKodesh, that means Holy Spirit in Hebrew, comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses both in Yerushalayim, that's the Jewish way of saying Jerusalem, and all of Yehuda, that's Judah, 
and Shomron, that's Samaria, which people today call the West Bank. Judea, Samaria. It's not the West Bank, it's Judea, Samaria. That's the legal name, okay? That's Israel. And indeed, to the ends of the earth. Notice he's not saying, why would you ask such a dumb question? Don't you know religion's not political? Have you not been with me all these years and you still don't get it? No, he doesn't say any of that. He just says, don't worry. The father has that in his time. It's not time for that. But he's not saying, no, no, don't you get it? That's not part of the plan. It is part of the plan. God is restoring Israel. But he knew, Yeshua knew, that just in a few decades, Rome would come, destroy the temple, Israel would be exiled, but that was part of the plan because he had to get the good news to the nations. Ladies and gentlemen, over the last 2,000 years, the gospel's gone out of Israel, up to north, into Europe, all the way across the ocean, into the Americas, down into South America. Now, the gospel is being accepted and revival is happening more in Africa than anywhere else in the world. And then... It's heading north back to where it came from. The belly button of the earth, Israel. And today, as I stand before you, there are more Jews that believe in Jesus than there ever has been since he walked the face of the earth. Not only was the nation of Israel reborn in 1948, but Jews are being reborn, born again. And here's the funny thing, we're staying Jewish. We don't stop being Jews. And guess what? We don't convert to another religion. This is our religion. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not foreign religion to us. The Gentiles who used to be pagan, they convert into this religion. They're grafted in. We're regrafted into our own natural Jewish olive tree, okay? But see, people don't understand that, but the Messianic movement represents that. Now, I'm not here to talk about the Messianic movement, but I, you need to know what it is because it's all part of this big plan, the restoration of Israel. It's all part of the plan. Now, you hear this word Zionism, and I noticed in one of your songs you, you mentioned Zion. Okay, well, you know, this is, again, a very contested word. It's a hot-button word. A lot of people hate the word Zion or Zionism, and so... What is the fact? What is Zionism? Okay, before you condemn it, before you, you know, want to strike it from your vocabulary, let's first get the definition of it. And it was coined by Nathan Birnbaum in 1890, before Israel was a state. And here's the definition. Here's what it is. Zionism is a national movement for the return of the Jewish people to their homeland and the resumption of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel advocated from its inception, tangible as well as spiritual. Jews of all persuasions, left-leaning, right-leaning, religious and secular, joined together to form the Zionist movement, and they worked together toward these goals. Disagreements led to rifts. You get two Jews in a room, you got five opinions, okay? But ultimately, the common goal of a Jewish state, and it's in its ancient homeland, was attained. The term Zionism, was this, this was coined by Nathan Birnbaum. Now, 
That led, that idea started in the late 19th century. Theodore Herzl, if you know the history, was one of the first, I think he was the first head of the Jewish Congress, the, Zion, the first Zionist Congress. They met, they had their ideas, and they began to make proposals to the international community. But finally in 1948, on one day in May, it was finally declared Israel had its own state, and this was called Yom Ha'atzma'ut, which I believe I have on the board as my first point in the next slide, and I want to show it to you. It's called Israel's Day of Independence in my uh, PowerPoint, if you'll bring that up. And Israel had a declaration of independence just like the United States in July 4th, 1776. Forgive me. Six. I get these dates mixed up, but anyways, 76, and uh, we have our, uh, Israel has its uh, uh, declaration. Here's part of it. It's uh, complete equality of social and political rights to all the inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. It will guarantee freedom of religion conscience, language, education, and culture, and it will safeguard the holy places of all religions. This is in the Declaration of Independence from May 1948. So uh, this kind of sets the record straight. Now, Theodore Herzl, I'm sorry, uh, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, made this de declaration on that day. And it's not in the PowerPoint, but I'll share it with you. The land of Israel, he said, was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here, their spiritual, religious, political identity was shaped. Here, they first attained statehood, created cultural values and national and universal significance. They gave the world the eternal book of books, okay, the Bible. After being forcefully exiled from their land by the Romans 2,000 years ago, they kept faith wherever they went throughout the dispersion and never ceased to pray for hope for their return to that land for the restoration of it and of their political freedom. Okay, that's a fact. He went on to say, impelled by this historic and traditional attachment, Jews strove in every successive generation to reestablish themselves in their ancient homeland. In recent decades, they returned in mass, pioneers, defiant returnees, defenders. They made the deserts bloom, revived the Hebrew language, built villages and towns, and created a thriving community controlling its own economy and culture, loving peace, but knowing how to defend itself, bringing the blessings of progress to all of the country's inhabitants and aspiring towards independent nationhood. In the year 1897, at the summons of the spiritual father of the Jewish state, Theodore Herzl, the first Zionist Congress convened, and it proclaimed the right of the Jewish people to a national rebirth in its own country. Now, listen to what I, he just said. 1897, the first Jewish Congress, they made a proclamation. This was long before Israel became a state, okay? Later, in 1917, the First World War is going on, okay? That right 
was recognized which by what is called the Belfour Doc De Declaration in the 2nd of November of 1917. And it reaffirmed the mandate of the League of Nations, which is what the United Nations is today. Back then, uh, it was called the League of Nations. They recognized the Jewish people's right to go back to Israel. Now, that hadn't happened yet. There hadn't been a big, you know, aliyah. There's been some aliyah at that point. But, but finally, it was recognized for the first time in 2,000 years by an international organization called the League of Nations. Then catastrophe, catastrophe befell the Jewish people, and the massacre of millions of Jews took place in Europe. And it was another clear demonstration of the urgency of solving the problem of the homelessness by reestablishing the land of Israel, the Jewish state, which would open the gates of the homeland wide to every Jew and confer upon the Jewish people the status of a fully privileged member of the community of nations. Survivors of the Nazi Holocaust in Europe, as well as Jews from all parts of the world, continued to migrate to this land, undaunted by their difficulties and restrictions and dangers, and never ceased to assert their right to a life of dignity, freedom, and the honest toil of a national homeland. In the Second World War, the Jewish community of this country, he said, this, I'm quoting him, contributed its full share to the struggle of freedom and peace-loving nations against the forces of Nazi wickedness and by the blood of its soldiers and its war effort, gained the right to be reckoned among the peoples who founded the United Nations. On the 29th of November, 1947, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution calling for the establishment of the Jewish state known as Israel. The General Assembly required its inhabitants of this land to take such steps as were necessary on the part of implementation of that resolution. This recognition by the United Nations of the right of the Jewish people to establish their state was irrevocable. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, it was legal. There was nothing illegal about it. It was totally legal, totally recognized, and sanctioned by the international community. This right, he said, is the natural right of the Jewish people to be masters of their own fate, like every other nation is, in their own sovereign state. And accordingly, we, members of the People's Council and representatives of the Jewish community of Eretz Israel and the Zionist movement are here assembled on the day of termination of the British mandate over Israel and by virtue of our natural and historic right on the strength of the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly hereby declare the establishment of a Jewish state in the land of Israel to be known as the State of Israel. Those were his exact words. And then he closes by saying this. We declare with effect that the moment of the termination of the mandate being tonight, the eve of the Sabbath, on the 6th of Iyar in the year 5708, which corresponds to the 15th of May, 1948, 
until the establishment of the elected regular authorities of the state in accordance with a constitution shall be adopted by the elected constituent assembly no later than the 1st of October, 1948, the People's Council shall act as a provisional council of state and its executive organ, the People's Administration, shall be the provisional government of the Jewish state to be called Israel. The state of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration, for the ingathering of exiles. It will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all of its inhabitants, and it will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisioned by the prophets of Israel. And it will ensure, listen to this, this is very important, complete equality, this is what we just read, and political rights to all the inhabitants irrespective of religion, race, or sex. It will guarantee the freedom of religion, conscious language, education, and culture. It will safeguard all the holy places of all religions. Does that sound like an apartheid state to you? You know, people today accuse Israel of being an apartheid state. But look at this is our founding documents. The state of Israel, he said, is prepared to cooperate with the agencies and representatives of the United Nations in implementing the resolution of the General Assembly from 9, November 29, 1947, and will take steps to bring about the economic union of the whole land of Israel. We appeal to the United Nations of the Jewish people in building up the state and to receive the state of Israel into the community. We appeal in the very midst of onslaught launched against us now for months. See, Israel was already at war. They were already being attacked. To the inher Listen to this. To the inher Arab inhabitants of the state of Israel to preserve peace and participate in the upbuilding of the state of Israel on the basis of full and equal citizenship. You see, Ben-Gurion was saying we will give all Arabs, if they stay and if they help us and build up the state, we will give you equal citizenship. And they did. To the ones that remained, to the ones that stayed, they got full rights in Israel. They don't have to reside in Gaza. They don't have to reside. In, they can reside anywhere they want in Israel. Why? Because they're citizens. They didn't run off and flee. And today, their descendants serve in the Israeli Knesset. Well, what an apartheid state that is. What a terrible country would do that to the Arabs. He said, we extend our hand to all neighboring states and peoples in, in order of offer peace and good neighborliness to appeal to them to establish the bonds of cooperation and mutual help with the sovereign Jewish people settled in its own land. The state of Israel is prepared to do this in common effort for the advancement of the entire Middle East. We appeal to the Jewish people throughout the diaspora to rally to, with the Jews of the land of Israel and the tasks of immigration and upbuilding of the stand, by standing with us in a great struggle for realization of the age-old dream, the redemption of Israel. That is an exact quote. Now, that's the historical fact. Let's look at the myths and the lies, and let's address some of these myths and lies. And that's number two on the PowerPoint. Despite how clear the Constitution or this de declaration is about the Arab inhabitants, the time of this rebirth continues, there continues to be distortions of truth. 
Israel's declaration of the independence to the Arab communities to offer them full and equal citizenship, but yet Israel is said to be have occupied the land, dispossessed the land from the Arabs. You hear that lie all the time. And there's plenty of evidence, ladies and gentlemen, to show that much of the land of Israel before the Jews resettled it was nothing more than desert, a wasteland. Mark Twain went and visited the land of Israel in the late 19th century, the 1800s. And here's how he described it in 1867. This is when America was in a civil war or just getting over the civil war. Here's what Mark Twain wrote about visiting Israel. He said this, it's a desolate country, devoid both of vegetation and human population. A desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse, a desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route. Hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. He was amazed by how small the city of Jerusalem was. He said this, A fast walker could walk the walls of the old city of Jerusalem entirely in one hour. I do not know how else to make one understand how small it is. End quote. When people say that the Jews took the land from the Arabs and occupied it, it's a complete lie. It's a complete lie. It wasn't until the Jews began settling in and making Aliyah in these deserted places. If you ever see a picture of the very first um, kibbutz of Tel Aviv, it's nothing but a sand dune with a group of people standing on it. And that was the first shovel that went in the ground to build the city of Tel Aviv. It was nothing but a, a sand dune. And so it wasn't until the Jews began building and then the desert began blooming and then water and irrigation and crops and before you knew it, there was mango trees and there was all kinds of uh, mango farms and, 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 and fruit growing up out of the ground. Then all of a sudden, well, wait a minute, that's our land. You took our land from us. Before that, it was nothing. Nobody wanted it. But when the Jews came back, this scripture was fulfilled. Isaiah 41. Look at this. I had it on the board. I will open up the rivers and the barren hills and the wells down in the broad valleys. I will turn the desert into a lake and dry ground into springs. I will plant the desert with cedars, acacias, myrtles, olive trees in the Arava. I will put cypresses together and elm trees and lurches and the people will see and know together and observe and understand that the hand of Adonai has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. It's prophetic. It was prophetic. And these are the facts. This actually happened. There's pictures of it. It's documented. But no, you took our land from us. 
See, when other people start prospering, jealousy comes in. Oh, you got the money. You got the blessing. You got the all. The, and then buildings started going up. Wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's our land. You, you, can, you took it from us. That's a myth. Here's the next myth. The Jews created a refugee problem by kicking out the Palestinians. That's a myth. Let me give you the facts. In 1947, when the United Nations came up with a resolution called the, uh, uh, it was called the, um, uh, it was, uh, let me get the name of it here. They got the, uh, when they divided Israel, that's the uh, resolution to divide the land. The UN gave pieces of Israel to the Arabs. They said, this will be known as the Palestinian state. And they said to Israel, here's your partition. That's the name of it, Partition Agreement. The UN 1947 Partition Agreement. Israel said, sounds good. We'll take it. The Arabs said, no way. We don't want it. Nope. They did not want their own state. They had it offered to them legally. They rejected it. Why? Because they don't really want their own state. See, this whole thing about a two-state solution, that's been going on for almost, you know, it'll, since 1948 or even before. The two-state solution was offered to them in 1947. They didn't want it. To this day, they don't want it. Why? Because all they want is the Jews gone and give us back what they built. That's all they want. They don't want their own state. Had they accepted that, in 1947, there would be no Palestinian refugee crisis. It would have been solved had they just accepted what was being offered to them. The beginning of the Arab exodus can be traced to the weeks immediate following the UN partition resolution. The first to leave were 30,000 wealthy Arabs who anticipated the coming war with Israel and they fled to the neighboring Arab countries to await the end of the war. Less affluent Arabs in the mixed cities of, quote, Palestine, moved into all Arab villages and towns to stay with relatives and friends. By the end of January 1948, the exodus was so alarming, so many Arabs were leaving, that the Palestinian Arab Higher Committee asked the neighboring Arab countries to refuse visas to these refugees and to seal the borders against them. In other words, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, all those countries that surround it, they said, no more, we're not taking any more Palestinians, you stay out. On January 30th, 1948, the Jaffa newspaper, Ash Shaab, reported, the, fir the first of our fifth column assists consists of those who abandon their houses and businesses to go live elsewhere. At the first signs of trouble, they take to their heels and they escape, sharing the burden of the struggle of the new state. Another Jaffa newspaper called As Sarikh on March 30th, 1948, said this, they excoriated the Arab villages near Tel Aviv for, quote, bringing down disgrace on us all by abandoning their villages. Meanwhile, the leader of the Arab National Committee in Haifa, 
Call, uh, his name was Hajij Nimir El Khatib, said Arab soldiers in Jaffa were mistreating the residents. They robbed individuals in their homes that were abandoned. Life was of little value and the honor of women was defiled. This state of affairs led many Arab residents to leave the city under the protection of the British tanks. John Begult Gloob, the commander of Jordan's Arab Legion, said, quote, villagers were frequently abandoned even before they were threatened by any progress of war. Contemporary press reports of major battles, which large numbers of Arabs were fleeing, conspicuously failed to mention any forcible expulsion by the Jewish forces. The Arabs are usually described as fleeing or evacuating their homes, while the Zionists are accused of expelling or dispossessing Arab inhabitants of such towns as Tiberias and Haifa. The truth is much different. Both these cities were within the boundaries of the Jewish state under the UN partition agreement, and both were fought for by both Jews and Arabs. Some Arabs did stay, but the majority took off and left. Jewish forces then took Tiberias on April 19, 1948, and the entire Arab population was 6,000, was evacuated under British military supervision. The Brits got them out of there, not the Jews. The Jewish Community Council issued a statement afterwards. We did not dispossess them. They themselves chose this course. Let no citizen touch their property. And in early April, an estimated 25,000 Arabs left Haifa area following an offensive of irregular forces led by Fauzi al-Kavuchi and rumors that Arab forces would soon bomb the Jewish areas around Mount Carmel. And on April 23rd, the Haganah officially captured Haifa. British police report from Haifa on April 26th that every effort is being made by the Jews to persuade the Arab populace to stay, carry on with their normal lives and get their shops and businesses open and to be assured that their lives and interests will be safe. This is the truth. What I'm telling you now, documented truth. In fact, David Ben-Gurion sent Golda Meir to Haifa to persuade the Arabs to stay, but she was unable to convince them because of their fear of being judged as traitors by the Arab, of the Arab cause by the surrounding Arab nations. She was unable. By the end of the battle, more than 50,000 Palestinians had already left. So to say that Israel kicked out the Palestinians is nothing but a satanic lie. Myth number three, and I won't go on too much longer. I'm wrapping this up. Israel is an expansionist state. Since its creation, it's trying to grab land. Israel's trying to grab land and occupy the West Bank. How many of you were alive in 2005? <laughs> Probably all of you, right? Do you know Israel completely withdrew from Gaza? In 2005, there's, there's not one Jewish home in Gaza. And there hasn't been since 2005. Oh, but we are occupying them. We gave it to them. I don't see someone willing to give up Washington, D.C. to the Russians. Let's let them have it for peace. Israel's boundaries, ladies and gentlemen, were determined by the United Nations. 
not by Israel. And Israel, the only land that they were able to take was in a defensive war in 1967 called the Six-Day War. Every land, in 1956, when they were attacked by the Arabs in the Suez Canal uh, uh, problem in 1956, the Egyptians, they gave the whole Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt. Israel had conquered all of the Sinai, but they gave it back. And in all of the wars, in 1979, there was an Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty. Israel withdrew from the Sinai from that Suez Canal conflict. In September of 1983, Israel withdrew from large areas of Lebanon, positioned south of the Awali River, and in 1985, it completed its withdrawal from Lebanon, except for a very narrow security zone just north of the Israeli border. That, too, was abandoned in the year 2000. After signing peace agreements with the Palestinians and a treaty with Jordan, Israel agreed to withdraw from most of the territory in the West Bank captured in Jordan in 1967 when they were attacked. A small area was returned, uh, was returned to Jordan and more than 40% was ceded to the Palestinian Authority. And the agreement with the Palestinians was also involved Israel's withdrawal. And in 1994, from most of the Gaza Strip, which I just mentioned by 2005, it's now 100%. The Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak offered to withdraw 95% from Judea and Samaria and give it to the Palestinians. Now, he came under a lot of heat for that. But that 100% of the Gaza Strip was a final settlement in 2005. Then we had the Oslo Agreements. Israel then withdrew from more than 40% of the West Bank, approximately 80% of Gaza, and then Israel's now preparing, and that's, I'm reading the, 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 the um, the plans to completely withdraw in 2005. And they said when that process is done, Israel will have withdrawn from 94% of all territory captured in 1967 in a defensive war. Negotiations continue regarding the final disposition of the remaining 6%. And actually, that's already been given back. So that's virtually all. The only thing that Israel kept was the Golan Heights in the north. From Syria because you never give your enemy the high point advantage in militarily that is military suicide if you get the chance to take the high ground you never give that up because it puts yourself at a security risk so that is the only land so this myth that Israel is trying to constantly take land and expand is a bunch of malarkey it's a lie and then finally, I want to say this myth that Israel occupies the West Bank. And this is ridiculous. Words matter, and the misuse of words applied to this Arab-Israeli conflict, and it has shaped perception of Israel's disadvantage. As in the case of the term West Bank, there's no such thing as West Bank. It's really Judea-Samaria. It's part of the UN partition agreement that was to be given to Israel. So there is no West Bank. And so the media wants us to see Israel as an occupier. And spokesmen use this word all the time. Today, the BBC calls Hamas freedom fighters. 
Last Saturday, when you saw them coming in and slaughtering civilians, not military, civilians, mainly young people, 300 young adults and teenagers. Yeah, freedom fighters. Boy, they're real brave, aren't they? Those are brave freedom fighters, aren't they? What a lie. When you hear this, even in American media, doesn't it make you sick to, to hear this malarkey? Occupation. I, I want to skip over this because I want to get to the meat of this. These are the myths. These are the facts. Billions of dollars of aid has gone to Hamas and to the Palestinian Authority for decades. Do you see them building schools and infrastructure for their children? Do you see them building hospitals? Do you see them do? No. You know what they do with all that billions? They invest in weapons from Iran and weapons of destruction to kill Israel, to kill the Jews. Conditions of the Palestinians living in Gaza and in Judea, Samaria, are substandard. These people live in squalor, and it's not because of a lack of money. Do you know that the PLO, the leaders, enrich themselves with that money? The nations give billions of dollars, and it only helps these rich Palestinian leaders. It only helps them. Israel, though, has Arab citizens that live very good lifestyles. And the ones living in Gaza, they see that. They know that. And so you know what Israel has done for them? They give them work visas to come into Israel, to leave Gaza, leave the West Bank, and come in to Israel and work and have a good standard of living. Israel is the only a country that has been trying to help the Palestinians live a better lifestyle the only way they can. Because you know what? They're self-governing. They're self-governing. They have their own government. You know who they elected? Hamas. Hamas is the most popular political party in, in all the Palestinian Gaza Strip. They elected it. They wanted it. And they get what they want. You know, Israel only gives maybe 40% of the electric and water. Or maybe it's the other way. 20% and the 40% is, is, is self self-generated by Gaza and, the, and Judea Samaria. Israel does not control all of their power or their water, just some of it. See, you're not going to hear that on the modern news here in America. But let me tell you about these birth pangs. There's been something happening since Saturday. Number three on the board, Mark chapter 13. When you hear the war noise of wars nearby and news of wars far off, don't be frightened. Such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For peoples will fight each other, nations will fight each other. There will be earthquakes in various places, there'll be famines, and this is but the beginning of the birth pains. Ladies and gentlemen, I have evidence that we are in birth pains. I'm going to show it to you in a moment. The first piece of evidence is what happened in September. Do you realize what happened last month? Do you remember what happened in Morocco? Do you remember the earthquakes where over 2,000 people in Morocco were killed? That happened around 9-11, just last month. But that's not all that happened. On uh, a few days later, September 12th, 
I believe it was September 12th. Do you remember what happened in Libya? The floods? A whole town of Libya was wiped out into the ocean. 11,800 people died just a few days after Morocco. The shofar was sounding. Do you remember? Because that was Rosh Hashanah. That was around Rosh Hashanah. Do you remember what happened the next day, September 12th? North Korean leader Kim Jong-un visits with Putin. And there's a big handshake on international television with them. And then a big crisis in Israel last month. Israel's uh, Supreme Court tried to usurp the prime minister and the government and take over the government. And there was a terrible uh, political controversy going on. Israel became very divided between July and September. Israel, ladies and gentlemen, never made a constitution. They have a declaration of independence, but they don't have a constitution. And so that's why the government, there's no um, you know, checks and balances like what we have in our country. And so it, they have been in political chaos. Israel was in political chaos, which led to the reason why they were struck now by Hamas. See, Hamas thinks that Israel is fighting each other. This is the best time to hit Israel. Then came October 7th, last week. My people and I were getting ready for service Saturday morning, October 7th. And that day was the last day of the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And that day is called the eighth day because it's, it's, it's a, a joyous holiday. It's supposed to be, you're commanded. It's the only holiday where you're actually commanded to rejoice. It's found in Leviticus 23. And so there we were trying to get ready for, for Shemini Yetzirah, Simchat Torah, joy of the Torah. We're coming together on that Shabbat morning. And my, I got up at 6 a.m. My wife tells me there's some horrible news coming out of Israel. And so I looked and I saw. And when we went to service that morning, we had to stop all the music. There was no more joyful songs, no more dancing, no more tambourines, no more joy. We had to mourn. We, our joy was turned into mourning on the most joyous holiday on the Hebrew calendar. Because the, era, the, the Hamas chose that day, that morning, to attack our people. Now, I'm going to show you a slide. I'm going to show you a short video clip from NBC News. I told you I see what my, uh, you know, my, my uh, opposition, I like to see what they say. But I found something on the news that uh, was very disconcerting. It's nothing gory. It's, it's nothing about that it's more spiritual. And so if we do have that video, it's very short, it's only a few seconds. But I, what I'd like to do is stop it right at the, at the end of it. So let's go ahead and try to show that it's embedded into the PowerPoint. We're getting a devastating first-hand look at the site of that music festival where more than 250 people were killed by Hamas. Raf Sanchez reports on a night of joy interrupted by terror. The sun was rising, but the music played on. Right there. Look at that. You see what that is? I want to leave that image on the screen. A music festival? An innocent music 
festival. Really? Ladies and gentlemen, nobody's talking about this, and I'm <clears throat> quite shocked. I don't hear any voices in the church, and I don't hear any voices in the Messianic Jewish movement that are talking about this. <clears throat> I didn't know what a rave was until Saturday. I had to research it. And after last Saturday's attack, right there, that's image from last Saturday, all flights in and out of Israel were canceled except for two cities. El Al Airlines allowed flights in and out from only two cities in the world. The first was New York City. That's pretty obvious. There's more Jews in New York City than there are in anywhere outside of Israel. So that made sense. Do you know what other city El Al was flying out of? Bangkok, Thailand. Why in the world will El Al sanction flights coming in out of Bangkok? Well, let me tell you what I found out. Eastern mysticism and Thai Buddhism is very popular among secular Israelis. You see, what happens at a rave is a combination of experiences. What the music, it's called electronic music. Some of you might know what that is. That's that doom, 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 okay? And you get this beat going, okay? And then you mix it with mushrooms. No, no. I'm not talking about sautéed mushrooms, you know. No, 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 no. This isn't... This isn't the mushrooms and onion you put on your steak, okay? You know what I'm talking, the psychedelic drugs. Psychedelic drugs. And the amount of alcohol, and they show the pictures of the bar right there. You can see the whiskey and the tequila and everything. Hard liquor. These kids, these are kids. The women are half-dressed, okay? This is an orgy of immorality with an idol sitting on the top of a sukkah. A sukkah is the tabernacle that God commanded to be built in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. And do you know what day it was that they were doing this rave? Shabbat and the, feast of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the most holiest day in all Israel for Jews. And they were committing immorality with the idols of the world they had no idea what they're doing because the god of israel says i am a jealous god and you israel will not worship other gods before me and now let me say something god didn't do this to them don't blame god for this because all god does when israel rejects him and they turn to other gods is he takes his hand of protection over the nation and he says, okay, you don't want me? Okay, I'm out of here. And you're on your own. They have no idea what they're doing. It's not an innocent dance party. Don't believe that. This was immorality. This is the same thing that our people were doing 
when Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. This is the same thing what our people were doing when Moses came down the mountain and saw the golden calf. All right? Ladies and gentlemen, things are happening in the world. These are birth pangs. Do you know what happened yesterday? Yesterday, a rare celestial spectacle appeared over America on Saturday, yesterday, the likes of which we will not be seen again until the year 2046. Millions within the path of an annular solar eclipse has created what is called a ring of fire over the North and Central South America. So what it is is when the moon goes over the sun and all you see is a ring, it's black, and then only around the edges do you see fire coming out. It's called a ring of fire. Now, I went to the American Pregnancy Association website. And here's what they say. What you should know about a baby, uh, giving birth to a baby. When your baby's head crowns, you will experience a burning or stinging sensation, often referred to as a ring of fire. As your baby stretches the vaginal opening, as soon as you feel this sensation, stop pushing. It is very important to stop pushing at this point because continuing to push and bear down increases the risk of tearing to need, and you may need an episteotomy. If you forget, your doctor or midwife will remind you. The burning, stinging sensation only lasts for a short time and is followed by the feeling of numbness. The numbness comes as the baby's head is stretching from the vaginal tissue so thin that the vaginal nerves are blocked. The effect is like a natural anesthetic. There's no set time frame for how long this step of delivery will last. How many of you women can say that's true? Can I see some heads? Okay. We are in labor pains, and guess what? The head is crowning. The head is crowning. Yeshua said this in Mark 13, For there will be worse trouble at that time than there ever has been from the beginning. When God created the universe until now, there will be nothing like it again. Indeed, if God had not limited the duration of the trouble, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those whom he has chosen, he has limited it. And later he goes on to say, you better hope it's not on Shabbat and pray and pray that, you know, it'd be worse for women that are pregnant. These wars that we're seeing is the birth pangs. I want to skip over to Mark 13 and close. Mark 13, 24. I had Genesis 16, but we're going to skip over that. In those days, after that trouble, the sun will grow dark and the moon will stop shining. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds with tremendous power and glory. And he will send his angels to gather his chosen from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now let the fig tree teach you its lesson. When its branches begin to sprout and leaves appear, you know that summer is approaching. Ladies and gentlemen, the fig tree is Israel. The fig tree has blossomed since 1948. 
When you see that fig tree blossom, summer is approaching in the same way. When you see these things happening, the wars, the sun, the moon, the signs in the heaven, he says, in the same way, when you see these things happening, you are to know that the time is near right at the door. The head is crowning. Yes, I tell you, this people, this generation will not certainly pass away until all these things happen. Which generation? The generation that is there that sees these things happening. Israel, today, the, now, this generation will not pass away until you see all these things happen. However, when that day or, or what day or that hour come, no one knows. The angels in heaven, not the son, just the father. Stay alert. Be on your guard, for you do not know what time he will come. Ladies and gentlemen, it is no longer time for business as usual. It is no longer time for church as usual. It is no longer time to sit on the fence. Gee, should I keep sinning and enjoying this lifestyle of immorality? Or should I make a decision and get right with God and get right with Yeshua? It's time to take sides. And don't take sides with the enemy of Israel. Let me just tell you, he who touches the apple of God's eye. God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. Do not choose the wrong side. I warn you today. Now, the last thing I have to accomplish is how to pray for Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know the things that I just shared with you today, if this is all new to you, then you are not yet equipped to even begin to pray for Israel. Because what most people want is just, let's just end the war. Let's just cease. Let's just stop, you know, uh, ceasefire. Well, you know what? That's easy to say when it's not your child that's in a bondage in Gaza right now. You would want all forces going in there to find the, your kidnapped daughter or son. Would you not? Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to love and a time to hate. There's a time for peace and there's a time for war. When Jesus said turn the other cheek, he was talking about when you are occupied by a, by a dominant force and you have an enemy who just asks you to go somewhere or take something, you give them the other cheek. He was not saying that Israel today should allow terrorists to come in and just kill and rape and murder and destroy and not defend yourself. That's not the words of Jesus, all right? That's a misunderstanding, a misapplication. And by the way, nobody says that to the freedom fighters of Hamas. No one tells them to turn the other cheek. No, only Jews are told to turn the other cheek. Friends, you got to get off the fence, make a decision of who you're going to support. But don't be on the wrong side. That's all I got to say to you. So if you're not equipped to pray, how do you pray? Here's my offer to you. Since, well, for many decades... There's been an organization by Messianic Jews called Intercessors for Israel. And this has been going on since the late 80s. And they meet, and there are IFI teams, Intercessors for Israel, that are teams all over the world. And I happen to have one in my synagogue. And since this war began, we decided to take the IFI prayer meeting and turn it into a webinar. 
to invite the entire Northeast Ohio community to join us. We get prayer updates every Friday morning from Messianic Jewish Israeli believers, born-again believers living in the land on the ground in Israel. We get information from them that you cannot get from NBC, ABC, CBS, or Communist News Network, okay? Do not rely on those media outlets. You, when you listen to them, you're going to only get what they want you to get, okay? You should know what they're saying, but don't follow like sheep those media outlets. If you really want to know what's going on in Israel, if you really want to know what's going on, if, if you're serious for praying for Israel, then all you have to do, and, and this costs no money, it's just a little time. If you have time on Friday mornings to join us in prayer, you can jump on our webinar. It's on our website at tikvotcleveland.org. Tikvot is T-I-K, V is in Victor, A, T is in Tom, Cleveland, I think you know how to spell Cleveland, dot O-R-G. You go to our website, it's right there. Scroll down, you'll see. We stand with Israel, and there's a link to register for the webinar. Now, you'll, there you'll get informed, and you'll be able to pray with us. But um, that's all I can offer you on how to pray. I think I've taken up enough time. I gotta stop, but ladies and gentlemen, thank you for this great honor, the time that you've given me to share with you. I only want the best for you. God bless you.